you're new to them, um, they're um, a, a, a very central part of our practice, and it's um, nice to understand a little bit about what they are. So um, the five mindfulness trainings originated from one of the only official teachings the Buddha offered to lay people 2,600 years ago. The versions we'll be reading, and we're just reading number five tonight, um, have been expanded on by Thich Nhat Hanh and other senior practitioners in our mindfulness tradition in order to bring them more fully into our modern lifestyles. It's important to keep in mind that the trainings are designed not as rules or a set of concrete do's and don'ts, but are intended instead to serve as a guide along our path of becoming a more skillful, kind, and engaged with ourselves and our surroundings in the present moment. The way we practice with the trainings is up to us, and we find that our understanding and relationship with each one deepens and changes over time. There's no one right way to interpret these trainings, and we are not asked to do them perfectly, nor can we, as perfection is an illusion. We are invited to move in their direction, using them as a tool to cultivate understanding, compassion, and connection. Awesome. Well, thank you guys very much for listening to me today. So I'll start by reading the fifth mindfulness training. Nourishment and healing. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I am committed to cultivating good health both physical and mental, for myself, my family, and my society by, practice, by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. I will practice looking deeply into how I consume the four kinds of nutrients, namely edible foods, sense impressions, volition, and consciousness. I am determined not to gamble or to use alcohol, drugs, or any other products which contain toxins, such as certain websites, electronic games, TV programs, films, magazines, books, and conversations. I will practice coming back to the present moment to be in touch with the refreshing, healing, and nourishing elements in me and around me, not letting regrets and sorrow drive me back into the past, nor letting anxieties, fears, or craving pull me out of the present moment. I am determined not to cover up loneliness, anxiety, or other suffering by losing myself in consumption. I will contemplate inner being and consume in a way that preserves peace, joy, and well-being in my body and consciousness and in the collective body and consciousness of my family, my society, and the earth. So the fifth mindfulness training is basically why I ended up meditating. Back in 2016, I had taken a semester off grad school due to a lot of physical pain that I was in. I had a chronic neck injury that had been going on for many years. I had migraines that had been constantly getting worse. And I was enrolled in the pain school at St. Pat's. That's actually the name of the course. 
and it teaches you a lot about chronic pain and how to deal with it. And one of the things it introduced me to was meditation. And me being me, I then immediately started searching for all of the scientific studies on meditation and pain and found that there's actually quite a substantial body of work about using mindfulness and meditation to mitigate particularly chronic pain. So with that, I dove full in and ended up going to numerous retreats and sitting here weekly and starting a home meditation practice uh, pretty right off the bat to try and work on that physical pain. Um, though I will give you a bit of a spoiler and tell you that it ended up being more the physical therapy and some advances in drugs, which did a lot towards eliminating that pain. But it was meditation and mindfulness, which did as much, if not more, to increase my quality of life. And I want to tell you a bit about how that somewhat paradoxical situation came about. So when I first read the fifth mindfulness training, I thought it was mostly about food. Um, and particularly with migraines and inflammation uh, with chronic pain, food can be a huge part of it. My doctors gave me a full list of things that I was to eat so that I could help reduce inflammation and a whole list of other things I was not to eat because it could trigger my migraines and these frequently overlapped. Um, but for me, food and the work I put into consuming mindfully and making sure I was eating things that were healthy for me was also a pretty small part of what the fifth mindfulness training came to mean for me. Instead, you may remember there's a part that says the four kinds of nutriments, edible foods was one, but then it says sense impressions, volition, and consciousness. So for me, that came to mean the experiences that I chose in my life what I chose to go out and do an experience and how I thought about that and what I chose not to do. So for me, the way these experiences nourish me is a bit like if you had a depression in a cave and the cave's really dark and cool and water drips down from a long stalactite into this little pool, right? There's no evaporation really going on. There's nothing draining that water. So over time, that pool fills up and overflows so too with me and happiness. And even if I have a little bit dripping in on me, just some experiences that are creating happiness in my life, if nothing's draining me, it builds up and it will overflow my life, and that's a great thing. Conversely, if I go home and I turn both taps on on the sink, but I leave the drain up, I'm not gonna fill the sink. <laughs> it's just not happening. Uh, so what I started doing with my work with the fifth mindfulness training is looking at how I consumed experiences and if they were helping me, if they were helping fill my sink with happiness, or if they were leaving the drain up and causing me to lose that happiness I was working so hard at cultivating. So at first I did what I thought were the big things. Okay, there's books, there's movies. They're listed in the fifth mindfulness training specifically. Well, let's look at that. And I love books. If you've been to my apartment, it's basically walled with bookshelves. And one of those was near and dear to me, and it was filled mostly with fantasy books and vampire novels. And the kill count in those things is probably in the high double digits for every single book. Uh, you lose quite a few minor characters. Um, and I enjoy reading them. They're really fun. But I would notice you know, the protagonists are generally pretty angsty, and they have these really dark mindsets. And 
I would start shifting a little bit towards that mindset of the dark, angsty protagonist who's seeing double digits of people go down per episode. Um, so I ended up putting all those in a box and putting them away, which I'm pretty good about not breaking into. Every now and then it does get broken into, but I've noticed that helped a little bit. Similarly, I'm not watching as many Marvel flicks these days. Um, I actually remember being in the theater and seeing a scene, I think it was Guardians of the Galaxy 2, where they're taking back the enemy ship and are taking over the enemy ship that captured them. And by doing so, they are systematically killing off every single enemy soldier in the ship. And they're laughing. And the audience is laughing. And I just remember having this moment of, I, I can't do this. <laughs> so I've cut back on those movies. And I thought, you know, that's, that's what this training is about. I'm doing, I'm not consuming the negative media. It's great. But when I actually started paying attention to what the stressors in my life were, those again were actually relatively minor things. It was good that I was working on them, but they weren't, they were like tiny little pinholes in the side of the bucket. They weren't like the gaping hole at the bottom of the bucket. So patching them is good, but not fixing the issues. So then I tried to look deeper at what's actually causing me the most stress in my life. And at the time, I was a PhD student at the University of Montana in wildlife biology. And I was expected to be working 60 to 80 hours a week on my research, in addition to being a TA, in addition to my various doctor's appointments on a weekly basis, in addition to the migraines, which were constantly getting more and more intense because the new drugs hadn't yet been released to market. Um, at this point, I don't even think I knew they were coming. And it occurred to me that even though I was trying to set aside time for positive things, self-help or self-care, meditation, and I was trying to reduce stress, with such a large stressor in my life, I wasn't able to make enough positive change. So in addition to that, I started looking into different career options. I started volunteering. So I actually upped my time commitment. <laughs> volunteering with nonprofits like the Clark Fork Coalition and the uh, Clark Fork Wettershed Education Program. And I really enjoyed that work. And I started thinking about the stress I was in now with grad school and the stress of being a postdoc, which is the next step, and the step of being a professor with my own research lab, which is the end step everyone wants to get to. And the time commitment those would be and the work-life balance or lack thereof that career path would have. So I ended up switching my entire career path. I changed from being a PhD student to being a master's student. And I finished that degree last December. Um, and I'm now working and shifting into the nonprofit world with conservation. And that has been a great decision. It reduced a lot of stress for me. I'm happier with my work. The things that I'm doing during the day, I'm like getting energy from instead of losing it to. Um, and that was that was huge for my life, was being able to see that decision or see that, that drain on my resources because of my mindfulness practice and then being able to assess, do I want to keep consuming the stress or do I want to make a change? Um, but it turns out <laughs> there was actually another stressor that was pretty equivalent to 
the PhD path. And I sort of feel like they should have a warning sign on the outside of open way when you walk in, caution, meditation may change your life. Um, I was, took a six-week MBSR course as part of my progress through meditation. And the person in the course was like, yeah, I ended up changing my career after taking one of these courses. I was like, oh, that's silly. It's like, oh, no, that happens. Um, so the other thing I ended up finding out was a big stressor for me. Uh, enough of a stressor that I may actually end up reading off my script, so apologies if that happens, was my family. So it's somewhat ironic that I'm talking about this the day after Mother's Day, because for a lot of people, it's like, at least I assume, for a lot of people, it's like this holiday that's like a Hallmark card come to life, where you have the kids make the mom pancakes or something, and everyone celebrates. Those of you who actually have like normal families, quote unquote, it's probably not quite like that, but that's what I imagine. But for me, and for several of my friends, it's a horrible holiday. Like I was on the phone with a friend trying to provide support just you know, recently about this issue. It helps bring home that you're not that Hallmark card and you're not going to be. But I feel like there's a lot of pressure from society to try and be that Hallmark card regardless. So it took me a while to realize issues uh, with my family. So for me, the word family brings up memories of fear and loneliness, of people yelling at me, yelling at each other, threatening me, threatening each other, trying to manipulate and hurt everyone around them. My family wasn't physically or sexually abusive, but the possibility of physical attack from my older brother, mixed with his constant threats and cursing, was omnipresent as was the psychological abuse from my mother, the ambivalence of my sister, and the yelling of my father. No one needs to lay a hand on you to hurt you, especially when you're a child. Things became better when I left for college in a different state, but the psychological abuse continued whenever I contacted or visited my family. Before going home for a, ho a holiday, I would make sure that multiple friends knew I was going home and would be available to talk to me once the stress became too much. They usually ended up comforting me by a cell phone as I broke down sobbing. Despite all of this, I felt I had to go home for the holidays, that I had to call my family, that I was somehow required to be in touch with them. And of course, my parents and extended family helped with this impression by constantly reminding me that I needed to come home, denying that anything wrong had ever happened, and insisting I was overreacting. It took me years to realize that the ongoing contact I had with my family was still abusive and that just speaking to them drained the happiness from my life. Even if it was just talking to them over the phone, the emotional manipulation and the denial of my life experiences were devastating. I eventually realized that it would be hard for me to be happy or even believe myself worthy of being happy if I stayed in contact with them. So I broke from my family in steps, first asking them to observe certain boundaries. And when it became apparent they couldn't respect those boundaries, I started breaking, contract, breaking contact. First, I decided not to go back to Shreveport, Louisiana, where my parents and brother still live, or to speak to my mother. When I made this decision, I planned a two-week retreat over Christmas break at Deer Park Monastery in Southern California. I knew I would need the support of the Sangha to counteract the psychological abuse of my family. I sank myself deeply into that retreat, 
swapping the negative experiences of my home life with a supportive perspective and protection of the Sangha. When word came my grandmother, long ill and unresponsive, was finally dying, I cried with my co-retreatants, but held firm and stayed at Deer Park. It was the right decision. And I am deeply grateful to that space for giving me the strength to separate from my family. Later, when it became clear I needed to cut contact from my father as well, I waited until Open Way's most recent retreat. On that retreat, I wrote and sent the email to my dad asking him not to contact me and received his response. And again, the space was held by my Sangha, both those individuals who knew that I was writing the letter and by those who did not. And that support helped me get through the draining process of cutting ties with my father and refill my reserves before re-entering society. As part of that Sangha, I would like to take a moment to thank all of you here for helping support me as I made and carry through these difficult choices. Thank you guys. But even if you plug up all the holes in your bucket or your sink, if you don't turn on the taps, you're still not going to get anywhere. So even though I've made all these changes in my life, removing stressors, I've also worked to increase positive aspects of my life, to consume these positive experiences to help nourish me. Stress happens. Even if you try to eliminate your stressors, you will have some. At least I will. So for me, it's really important to also not lose focus on cultivating the positive aspects of my life. So one of the things I did when I decided it was time for me to start really focusing on myself and learning what I needed to do to make myself happy is I started taking myself on dates. So I called these Miriam dates, and I gave myself permission to do whatever it is I wish some guy would come out of somewhere and do with me. <laughs> so if I was like, I really wish that someone would take, you can tell I was single at the time, I wish someone would take me on a date to a coffee shop, and we would get tea and have a great slice of cheesecake. I said, you know what? <laughs> tea and cheesecake for one. So I went to a coffee shop, and it was awesome. I was like, okay, it's a beautiful day. The farmer's market's going on. I wish I could go get breakfast and then walk along the stalls. And I was like, great, let's go. I went to the farmer's market and I sat in the sunshine and ate my sesame balls and I had a blast. I ended up going hiking by myself and sitting by rivers and just watching the ripples and having no one disturb my thoughts. I could just sit there with myself and just be. And this process, I actually turned out I was going on dates. I was getting to know myself in a way that I didn't know I needed to do. So I was learning what made me happy and how I could cultivate that joy by myself and on my own, which was extremely strengthening. As time went on, and I think this is actually a result of my doing that work on myself, I ended up having a larger social group and being comfortable in that social group those social groups. So I also started intentionally setting out times during the week where I would hang out with people, where I would just block off on my calendar, you're not working on a paper right now, 
you're going to go to DraftWorks and you're going to enjoy yourself and it's going to be great. Or you're going to go here and you're going to have this board game campaign once a week for the next few months and you are going to kick monster ass and it's going to be great. <laughs> and I found that was really important to actually being able to cultivate happiness in my life was to have those positive times set aside for me so I could focus on the joyful things in life and help nourish myself that way. And it doesn't have to be something big, like setting out an afternoon to go for a hike. I found that even small things, like sitting under my ficus, and yes, it is as big as me and almost as wide if you put me sideways as me. So you can sit under it and stare up at its leaves and it feels like being outside in a forest. And I'll sit under it and I'll color, or I'll just sit there and like drink some tea and enjoy myself. And maybe I'll do that for five or 10 minutes. But that's enough to start cultivating joy and having that positive experience again. Um, so to close, someone once told me that there's a Zen saying that when you're practicing meditation, you're seeking to buy iron, but what you actually end up buying is gold. So I came to meditation expecting to fix my migraines, get rid of my chronic pain, and just physically heal myself. And it turns out that even though I'm sure that helped with the process, um, it was more physical therapy, years of physical therapy for the neck, and a whole new class of drug being invented for the migraines that finished fixing that. But meditation is what actually improved my quality of life maybe even more than those medications, because it's what let me see what I needed to do to create and nurture joy. So thank you very much for listening to me. <laughs>